The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? The Chinese Communist Party likes to blame its domestic political problems on foreign interference and it has done so since the days of Chairman Mao. But sometimes, does this paranoia or this narrative have a point? Or at least, did it have a point during the depths of the Cold War, for example, when the United States, via the CIA, was countering communism across the world through so-called covert operations? My guest today is Professor John Delury, a historian at the Yonsei University in Seoul and author of a new book looking at the history of the CIA in China. It's called Agents of Subversion, and I'd highly recommend it because some of the incredible exploits detailed in there are nothing short of a spy thriller. So I've got John on the show today to talk about that history and what it tells us about US-China relations today. John, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Thank you, Cindy. I'm a fan of your podcast and really, really happy to be on here with you. I wanted to start with if we can briefly set the scene for the creation of the CIA in 1947, because I think this is something that I didn't properly appreciate, just how much it was a Cold War creation. Yeah, that's a great place to start because the United States in particular has an interesting history of being really, I mean, the American public and even the U.S. government scorned intelligence. This is something that a lot of Americans don't know, you know, because we kind of live in this post-CIA bubble. But if you look at the origins of it, there was a lot of resistance traditionally within American society and kind of the notion of American foreign policy and government was about transparency and openness and things that were antithetical to sort of spying and espionage. Those were associated with the British Empire and kind of looked down upon by Americans in their virtuous innocence, like we don't do stuff like that. So actually the breakthrough came prior to the CIA. It came during World War II with the creation of the Office of Strategic Services or OSS. OSS is known as the forerunner of the CIA. And it was in the sense that it was the first, you could say, kind of centralized intelligence unit. It was it was heavily, you know, it's kind of mixed in with the military, but it was more like a civilian type of government agency. So it in that sense was the the precursor, but that was brand new really. That hadn't existed before. And right after World War II, one of the first things Harry Truman did is got rid of OSS. You know, he said we don't want an American Gestapo and killed it. So the CIA had to essentially those who wanted to create the CIA, they really had to use the transition into now these Cold War fears of the Soviets. And we can't afford to be innocent anymore. We can't maintain that American tradition of not spying once the war is over. We have to have essentially a permanent peacetime, civilian, centralized intelligence organization. And that's what the CIA was. And so the timing is really indicative, right? Like the spring of 1947 is when Truman goes to Congress and gives his famous 
speech, which I describe as the de facto declaration of the Cold War. It's the source of the Truman Doctrine, where he says we have to defend Greece and all these places against the spread of totalitarianism. That's the spring. The fall is the legislation, which creates the whole kind of new national security apparatus, including the CIA. So with the blessing, as it were, of the American government, the CIA takes it upon itself to basically counter communist influences across the world, really. I mean, in various continents, toppling democratically elected governments if they were seen to be too close to the USSR or interfering in elections to make sure that communists don't win. So in that grand scheme of things, then the fall of China to communism in 1949 must have been seen as a massive loss. It's devastating. And You know, there's so much as a historian you learn when you go back and really intensively research any period of time. For me, this was one of those points of history that I didn't appreciate in my previously just kind of superficial understanding of just how intensely Americans, kind of American society writ large, felt the impact of what they described as the loss of China. Mao Zedong was leading the communist movement at that point when Mao and the communists triumph in the Civil War in 1949, which the Americans know by even by early 1948, they see the writing on the wall. So not the public, but the government and the, these new analysts at the CIA, they actually quite accurately anticipated by at least like mid-1948 that Chiang Kai-shek was going to lose. So the government had some time to get ready for it, but still it was this sort of for the national psyche, it was really devastating that the largest country on earth, still seen as weak, that's important, very much a second fiddle to the Soviet Union, which was the really scary great power or superpower, but still the largest country on earth and one that previously had had this kind of special relationship in the eyes of Americans. Uh, you know, mm. America kind of has this protecting, this very missionary spirit, you know, kind of the United States leading China into the future, suddenly China's going its own way. It's communist, it's godless, it's heathen now. And it really had that, the combination of in the fall of 1949, you have this so-called loss of China where the communists win the civil war and then the Soviets test the atomic bomb. And sort of these two, if you read the literature at that moment, it's described as kind of this trauma basically for the United States going forward. So did the loss of China then turn into a bit of a blame game for those in the American establishment? And does that colour what the American approach is to China in the coming decades? It did. When you look at the changes in American domestic politics, and in particular, this becomes the rise of McCarthyism, right? Who mm. Senator Joe McCarthy and everything that's bound up in that, it's kind of the second Red Scare in American history, but the biggest Red Scare and all that sort of paranoia of American politics in the McCarthy era, that is inextricably related to the loss of China. Because McCarthy is sort of combining this traumatic sense of how did that happen, right? How do we suddenly lose the largest country on earth, which we Americans thought we had this special relationship with? These guys are now suddenly communist. And we should add the other important context was the outbreak of the Korean War, which came as a total surprise. It wasn't until the Korean War that McCarthy really had the space to go before the Senate and say, you know, there are enemies within. Uh, that was his first famous speech, but it really catches fire in the context of the Korean War. There are traitors in our midst. They're the reason we lost China. That was mm. McCarthy's kind of central original argument. 
is that the sleeper agents and pinkos and all that stuff from that era, they explain, as you said, the blame game, they explain this mystery of how China suddenly went communist. And so the first name that Joe McCarthy put out to start the whole witch hunt was this, you know, we know him. He was a great scholar. Sinologists would know him, but totally obscure figure, Owen Lattimore, professor at Johns Hopkins. He appears on the cover of the New York Times as the top Soviet agent at work in America in 1950. And that's McCarthy. Again, you can see him linking the who lost China. Oh, these traitors within are the reason we lost China. I want to pick up on something you said earlier as well, this idea that the Americans saw it as their duty to bring China into the modern world, this kind of shepherding role. Can you talk a little bit about that attitude? Yes. So I think when you look broadly at the American public, and my favorite historian on this topic, who I, you know, come standing on the shoulder of, of this particular giant is Gordon H. Chang at Stanford University, who wrote this marvelous book, Fateful Ties, that's a study of US-China relations. He might be good for a future podcast. And he really goes into that history in the 19th century. We could call it a kind of missionary complex that Americans have, because if you go back to that period, it's, it's merchants and missionaries who are the primary you know, kind of group of Americans going to China. And then, of course, you have labor migration and some other forms of migration of Chinese coming to the United States. But in that mixture, that kind of filters into the American public of missionaries sending this message, often a, a positive, actually, message about China. And some of them are the most knowledgeable Americans about China. Many of them speak the language, but still they've got a missionary complex, you know, and it's all about kind of saving China. And they really try to inspire Americans to feel like this place, if we could convert these people to Christianity, think of what we'd achieve. And so that all flows with its 19th century roots. That's flowing in to the 20th century. And then the other piece is during the war, there is a very important wartime alliance. I think you've had Ron Amitter on the show. And of course, he's the great historian of that topic. And so you get all of this propaganda in the United States about you kind of combining the missionary roots with now the military ties, right? And, and all this propaganda about Americans and Chinese fighting against the evil Japanese empire, arm in arm. So when you put all that together, it's easier to understand in its time that Americans have that kind of ultimately very patronizing idea that China is somehow up to them. Right. It is fascinating to think about just how close China and America were before the communist takeover. I mean, I think that's something that we often forget, especially in this kind of historical moment. Let's talk a little bit about what the CIA did do in China then, having lost China. Um, there are some incredible details in your book, like the CIA trying to enlist the then Dalai Lama. That's amazing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, you also say that the term brainwashing comes from the Chinese phrase, Xina, which I didn't mm. realize, literally mm. a translation. But perhaps we can start by talking about the cooperation with indigenous Chinese forces. So for example, as happened in Hong Kong with the Third Force, which is a Chinese movement, if you can call it that, that was neither the communists nor the nationalist Kuomintang force. I didn't know about this. Tell us about it. Well, I should confess I didn't either before setting out on this project. And indeed, one of the reasons I thought I got to explore this as a book is I heard about this for mission, which we'll eventually get to a CIA mission. And then I heard references to it was about this third force idea. And I'm like, third force, who's the third force? So I spent quite a bit of time trying to answer my own question. Who exactly is the third force? And the answer is quite fascinating and gets you into a, a lot of interesting territory. Again, we have to zoom in in this very specific historical moment after 
the loss of China. Remember, it's not a 100% loss. It's like a 95% loss because <laughs> the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek's leadership, of course, vacate to Taiwan and establish their Republic of China government, I mean, reestablish it, still claiming, of course, the entire territory of the mainland, right? So claiming to be the legitimate government of all Chinese, but they're now in this, what they hope is temporary exile on the island of Taiwan. And some 2 million, you know, followers, loosely defined, uh, Nationalist Party soldiers and and whatnot, they follow, you could say, Chiang Kai-shek over there. Well, you've also got another stream on the ballpark of a million, and they're usually referred to as refugees, who end up in Hong Kong, which is, of course, a British colony. But the British are very afraid they're going to lose Hong Kong and and trying desperately to hold on to Hong Kong. But they do accept and are you know kind of giving safe harbor to this large group of, of refugees who don't want to stay in communist China. So they are, for various reasons, anti-communist or afraid of what will happen to them under a communist regime, but they do not go to Taiwan. And for some people, it's just geographic proximity, but for more senior people, military people, certainly a general, and for some intellectuals, it's a deliberate choice because this group, and now we're getting to the crux of the third force and why they're kind of centered in Hong Kong, they hate communism. They oppose Mao Zedong. They don't want to live under a communist Chinese regime. They also hate Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, and they consider him a fascist dictator. So they don't like either option. And they kind of rally under this slogan of being third parties or the third force. And it turns out when I've set out on this, I thought, oh, my God, this sounds like just a cockamamie, you know, CIA idea. That's actually a little bit unfair to the CIA. The third force has some serious roots in Chinese history. And for those who have familiarity there, the place to look is Liang Qichao, right, who's this towering figure of the early 20th century. And he's actually the modern beginning of a third force, right? He's trying to create a multi-party China where there'll be a kind of centrist, moderate option in the middle. Pro-democracy as well. That's right. That's right. Like just to have three options almost ensures you have a pluralistic democratic system, right? So Liang Qichao really kind of starts this. And then I focus in the book on a really interesting figure who uh, it's easier for American readers, uh, non-Chinese speaking American readers had a nice American English name, Carson Chang. So Zhang Junmai is a disciple of Liang Qichao. And he carries that banner forward of the third force as an intellectual idea, which again, has some serious roots in modern Chinese history. So it's not an entire fiction of the CIA. And then also some of the most serious China scholars here, I would focus on someone you know you would know, Cindy, and some of your listeners would know, John King Fairbank, who's at Harvard, and he's kind of one of the great experts on American experts on China at this time. And Fairbank understands all this stuff. And Fairbank is disillusioned, as many of the most seasoned American observers of China are. He's deeply disillusioned by Chiang Kai-shek, but he's no fan of communism. And so he's also looking at this third force. Maybe there is, not immediately, but in the long run, Maybe this is the best model for a pluralistic China. So it's a serious idea. They're, they're, in a way, in that moment, it's as serious an alternative as the nationalists in Taiwan, because most expectations are that the militarily, the U.S. government expects the communists to take Taiwan in a matter of months. It really is the Korean War that saves Taiwan. So in that context, it again, when you put yourself back there, it makes more sense that it's taken seriously, a third force in China 
or for China may be the best future. So it seems pretty natural then that the CIA latch onto this idea and this group of people, and they train some people, some agents from this group to do missions like dropping them out of planes over the Chinese mainland to sow discontent and gather intelligence. It's all pretty heroic stuff, and I would recommend listeners to pick up John's book just to read the details of just how mad and dramatic it all was. But how successful was that mission? Totally an utter failure, a failure to the point of real serious moral failure in terms of just a basic value of life of those who were involved in the program. Because for all I said about when you put yourself back in the historical context, that we should take this idea of the third force seriously once the CIA gets involved. Uh, Again, and this is not the CIA acting on its own initiative. The CIA is following orders. and And actually the CIA director at the time not a well-known figure, Beetle Smith, very interesting. He didn't like this stuff, you know, but he was being told this is what you need to do, being told by the by the president, by the White House, by the Defense Department. So, Although interestingly, those politicians didn't want to know the details of what they were signing off, did they? Because they wanted some kind of political cover was the message I got from your book, that they actually didn't want to know too much about what they were telling the CIA to do. Yes, that's correct. It's even referred to as a doctrine. There is a doctrine of plausible deniability, which is the key mechanism that allows the U.S. government and a president to have covert operations being done on his authority without necessarily his precise knowledge of everything that's happening. It's a very dangerous doctrine, right? Because you have to understand, again, you asked initially, Cindy, about the status of the CIA. The CIA has a weird kind of position in the whole governmental apparatus because it reports directly to the president. It's sort of under the the direct authority of the president via the National Security Council, which is also created through that same legislation. But they need some buffer where things can happen so long as there's a general, yeah, go do this. But you know, the president is not getting necessarily, or we don't know, a daily update on every single mission. I tried very hard to figure out with some specific missions how far up the chain of command the knowledge went. And it gets very blurry. And at a certain level, it, it almost gets unknowable. But my inferences were that, you know, they don't necessarily know. They know there's a general project that's signed off upon to cause trouble. And yeah, if we can overthrow the communists, great. So do what you can. But that doesn't mean that every mission by any stretch of the imagination is being signed off upon, even though hundreds of of men are involved. They're recruited, as you said, they're trained actually in Saipan. It's even crazier because they're training on beaches in the Pacific to go be deployed in the freezing mountains of Dongbei, of Manchuria. So, But there's a general authorization to go do this stuff, but then it kind of moves on its own accord. And you asked about, I mean, the success rate is zero. It's abysmal. They die in the effort or they're captured. And so it leads only to mayhem really for the CIA itself, or particularly for the agents, the Chinese agents who are being recruited. Mm. And in particular, it leads to the longest imprisonment of CIA agents in history through one of these missions. But I want to get to John Downey in just a little bit and just talk about sticking on the CIA operations on the Chinese side. What about Taiwan then? What about Taiwan as a base? Because there was a so-called Operation Octopus, wasn't there? Yeah, there's well-documented, extensive and intensive CIA operations using Taiwan and supporting nationalist units to go cause trouble, basically, through various forms of infiltration. And it's the whole range from 
espionage trying to gather intelligence it would more be military intelligence you know what's going on i mean we talk about invasions of taiwan uh, we can maybe discuss that later having looked at a period where there was you know they really had to be ready for imminent invasion of taiwan so there was a real need for military intelligence in the form of espionage but then there was also plenty of subversive stuff in terms of just causing trouble and making things difficult for a communist governance and the regime. And Taiwan is ultimately very close. So you can use boats across the Taiwan Straits and they would use aerial parachute drops as well. So there's quite a volume of activity that is going on with plenty of CIA, not every single mission, but plenty of CIA support and involvement to use Taiwan back in that time, to use Taiwan as a platform for both espionage as well as uh, covert subversive activities to make things difficult for the communists. Mm. And so let's talk about the biggest, I mean, I guess this is what you are alluding to when you say it's a moral failure. What happened to John Downey, the CIA agent who was caught upon one of these landings in mainland China because he wasn't freed until 1973. And for the first few years of his incarceration, people didn't actually know he was still alive. So tell us about how that happened. I mean, it's not really funny because he was locked up for 20 years with no way of knowing if he'd ever be freed. When I say moral failure, there's kind of two levels of it. Probably the even deeper moral failure is to the Chinese agents were recruited and sent on close to suicide missions. And so many of them lost their lives ultimately. But then there is a moral failure in this case to an American citizen. And he had a a compatriot with him, Dick Fecto. So these are uh, John Downey and Dick Fecto are these two college graduates. You know, Downey went to Yale and there's a lot in my book where I kind of use Yale as a microcosm and his background there. But anyhow, you have these two young guys, they're in their early 20s. And after a pretty rudimentary training, suddenly they're out training these Chinese agents. They go on a mission to extract one of the agents And I guess we'll try not to have too many spoilers here, Cindy, but suffice it to say the Chinese know they're coming. And so their plane is shot down, but the pilot and co-pilot die, but actually Downey and Fecto survived the crash. And this is a fascinating kind of moment where the Chinese don't say anything, you know? And I mean, on the Chinese side, and it was a lot of fun to find these documents, this mission is being directly monitored by Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong. And so this is definitely going to the very top on the PRC side. Interesting. And they're directly kind of, okay, now we do this, now we do that. And they're very worried about the whole extent of these missions and the fact that the CIA is flying four white, Caucasian American, non-Chinese speaking guys into Dongbei to get someone out, right? You think about that if you're Mao Zedong and the level of threat that you feel like, wow, these guys are really crazy as far as the lengths to which they will go Mm. to subvert what we're doing here. And so Mao, it's not surprising that he's paying attention, but as a historian, it was nice to find the the receipts that he really is paying attention. Now, the interesting thing is Mao and Zhou Enlai don't say anything for two years. So they keep totally quiet about the fact that they shot the plane down and took two CIA officers prisoner alive. Because they say nothing, the CIA analysts make a huge mistake. They all agree, oh, well, because they have no idea what happened to the plane, right? And so they have to figure it out when the plane doesn't come back. And so the analysts get together. You can imagine them in the room. They're like, uh, well, clearly, if they had caught the plane or if they had these guys, they would tell everyone about it. They wouldn't be able to resist the propaganda bonanza. And so since they're not saying anything about it, they must not have captured the plane. You know, They must not know. So the plane must have just crashed. 
And so the CIA just goes on its merry way and forgets about this stuff. Two years later, out of nowhere, basically, Thanksgiving in 1954, the message comes across Radio Peking, as it's called, says, we've just sentenced these two CIA officers who we caught two years ago. They've now finished their trial and one Downey got life imprisonment. Facto got a shorter sentence of 20 years. And by that point, their families have all been informed they're dead. The CIA has taken them for dead. And suddenly you have this massive crisis of now what do we do about our lies? And they essentially decide we will double down on the lie. And you mentioned moral failure. The next one is basically 20 years of doubling down on the lie. And saying that they're not CIA agents. Yeah, not just deny it, but, and this is the era of, you could probably say a kind of villainous figure in terms of American foreign policy, although he has an airport named after him. But John Foster Dulles, who's a huge figure throughout the 1950s, Secretary of State. I mean, the the window I had onto Dulles is is not a flattering one (laughs) because he, of course, knows the truth of the mission, but lies through his teeth in the most self-righteous and aggressive form possible. Oh, these communists, they'll lie about everything, you know? Mm. And here's Dulles lying to the American public, lying to American allies, you know, including the British, who are sort of like, what are these guys up to? I mean, the the British documentation on this is fascinating. (laughs) But led by Dulles, the U.S. government now has to lie through its teeth to deny the reality of the fact that this was a CIA mission, and they do it for decades. And it wasn't until Nixon's rapprochement with China that the two agents were freed. I mean, this kind of leads to my next question, which is just how successful were these covert operations in general? I don't just mean a third force, but in terms of a general strategy of changing what was going on inside China, how successful was covert ops compared to, let's say, someone like Kissinger coming around and doing diplomacy in a different way? I can't think of any serious argument for efficacy of these operations. I mean, the, probably the best argument you could muster would be something like in just the context of the Korean War, you could probably try to argue, well, they distracted Mao and Zhou a little bit from their war effort, right? And so kind of there's a military logic to anything you can do to sap the adversary's strength, right? And create a little trouble for them at home. That's going to potentially weaken their war effort. But I think even that doesn't really pass the laugh test because actually all of these subversive covert campaigns, I mean, they're quiet about the Downey Infecto case, but they're not quiet about the general effort that the United States is involved in and trying to overthrow them. On the contrary, the communists use this as part of their propaganda machine, but they've got fact on their side to kind of rile up the public and say, we have to fight them in Korea. We also have to fight them at home. Mm. There's traitors in our midst. So while you have the worst kind of pathologies of American politics in terms of trying to find communist sympathizers in the State Department, you have something on a far more damaging scale, on the scale of hundreds of thousands in Mao's first big campaigns, the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries and the campaign to eliminate counter-revolutionaries, these are devastating in terms of the impact that they have on China. And they are justified by the threat of covert operations, right? So is that what the United States wants to do to basically intensify the repressive forces within communist China? I mean, does that count as a foreign policy win? You know, that's kind of what you're down to when you try to 
make an argument that this was effective. So I would say the if you look again, as you said, Cindy, not only this particular third force effort, but you've got the stuff constantly going on from Taiwan. There are other efforts in Tibet later in the 1950s and into the 1960s. There's a kind of similar operation of training Tibetan operatives, essentially. None of this stuff leads to effective outcomes in terms of basic goals of American foreign policy. Quite the opposite. They're counterproductive in terms of what they do both within China, where they enhance the kind of repressive tendencies, as well as back in the United States, where they cause trouble for American governance and transparency and accountability in terms of how the American government works. Well, I wonder, do you think that's a particular Chinese challenge there? Because from your book and from everything that people read about the CIA, it does sound like they have success in terms of interfering and influencing domestic politics of different countries. You know, we've already talked about a few on this podcast. So why weren't they able to be successful? I mean, they had good reason to think that maybe they could (laughs) allow the third force to come back or allow the nationalists to come back. So why do you think they weren't successful in China? Or is it a myth that they were successful anywhere else as well? Great question. I would probably challenge the idea that it's successful really anywhere. Mm. Because if you look, I know what you mean, and it's true in places like the classic examples from the 50s would include Guatemala and Iran, where there are CIA-backed operations to topple governments that are, quote-unquote, successful in a very near term, like getting rid of one government and bringing in a new one. But there's not long-term success there. They end up destabilizing those governments and, and societies and ultimately undermining stable democracy, which I mean, I'm not so cynical about uh, America's place in the world. You know, it generally does work better for America when there are stable democracies. The more stable democracies, the better, generally speaking. And so these covert efforts to topple one government and put a quote unquote democratic government in its place, they, they don't work in any sustainable way. They have very short term successes. But still, I think you're making a, a really good point about the strength and maybe you could say resilience of communist rule, the CCP in China, that it is able to defend itself Mm. against these efforts because they do, quote unquote, work in other places, right? Even though they don't, I would say, work out in the long run. Whereas, you know, the CCP doesn't allow this stuff to work even in a kind of near-term way, right? They are very focused on fighting back against it and ultimately successful in fighting against all of these kind of covert, subversive attacks against their regime. Well, this reminds me of one general who was recruited for the third force situation in Hong Kong, but he always said from the beginning, this is never going to work in China because what Mao has done there is completely engage the proletariat, completely engage the masses so that you have a spy at every level. And this was a Chinese general who, who was able to tell the, tell the CIA that from the very beginning, although he done did try. That's right. And that wasn't the message that they wanted to hear. But I wondered also, how much did the CIA make it its job to understand China? I mean, this is something you've alluded to so far when you talk about Bedell Smith, the director of the CIA at the time. It seems like there was always this kind of battle between the two natures of the agency when it comes to intelligence gathering versus covert ops. And actually, it seems like a lot of the agents involved here don't know anything about China. I mean, if you look at someone like Downey, you know, he he didn't speak any Chinese. He didn't understand anything about China, whether it's geography or its history or anything like that. And when you talk about the recruitment methods from Yale, it seemed to be more about people who were athletic, had a healthy amount of patriotism, all that kind of stuff, rather than any specialty. 
That's really interesting to me in what it says about recruitment. Why wouldn't you want experts in a particular part? Do you think that you can be completely generalist about it? That's absolutely right. I mean, that's an absolutely critical point. And as you say, there is inner tension, sometimes contradiction at the heart of the mission of the CIA between what we could say is intelligence or analysis, uh, research and analysis. It was how it was referred to in the precursor in the OSS because the OSS also had as you say very nicely, Cindy, the part that's about understanding. We need to understand our friends too, but especially our adversaries and our enemies. We need to to know what makes them tick. We need to know what kind of impact our policies might have. We need to assess their strength and whether we think they're getting stronger or weaker. And to do that kind of analytic, it's also referred to as strategic intelligence, to get that kind of understanding, first of all, you have to have empathy. You have to be able to stand in the shoes of your adversary, right? If you want to know what makes someone tick. And you have to have a certain degree of detachment, right? And those are really, those principles that would allow you to better understand a place are in, again, tension, if not direct contradiction with the kind of cowboy, you know, or, or football star. We're so powerful now and we can hide this stuff or wink, wink, people kind of know we're doing it, but that just adds to our allure. We can move around the world and and just move pieces on the chessboard as we wish. We don't need to understand a place. We just need to pick who we want to run it and put them in power and everything will work out. You know, So you see that in particular in the 1950s, the tension. And again, I would say almost in defense of the CIA, because there's so many films and it can get this sort of, uh, I think, illusion about the CIA. Actually, there are, there are people within the CIA who say, I mean, this Beatles Smith says, our primary mission is intelligence. This is why we were created, is to centralize intelligence and understanding so that we can advise policymakers, so that we can tell the president very bluntly, that's a bad idea based on everything we understand about that region of the world. You know, that's one definition of what the CIA should have been doing. And he felt all the pressure. And once he leaves, the next director, Alan Dulles, who happens to be the brother of aforementioned John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles has no compunction whatsoever about the monkey business. He's all about let's topple as many governments as we can. And so, yeah, that tension is there. It's basically part of the the wiring, the hardwiring. And I mean, it probably reflects my own status as an academic, you know, to me, the intelligence stuff, the trying to understand makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense for a democratic government to have a somewhat secretive place that is charged with giving policymakers the best possible understanding of how an adversary works. Whereas running around the world toppling government seems like about the most undemocratic kind of agency you could devise. Though I suppose, again, in defence of the CIA, you could see why you would do anything you possibly could to counter communism if you believe in this domino theory of the world that was very popular at the time, that if one country becomes communist, the others topple down as well. So what about those later years into the Cold War, heading up to rapprochement? Did the CIA's behaviour change? Well, I should say, even when you get into the 1960s, which is a really overlooked period, you know, I hope that there can be more, I think, historians have a lot of free room to do more work on the 1960s. I found that a really interesting period, but there is definitely a downtick. You know, if you look at the 50s versus the 60s, the tempo really decreases in terms of active efforts. Some of that is just a function of recognizing it didn't work, 
in China, you know, as we discussed. And so less resources are going into actually trying to overthrow the CCP anymore. And then by the late 19th, by the mid 1960s, actually, the focus of everything shifts in a, in a profound way, in a way I did not fully understand until I did the research, the way in which the Vietnam War and the deepening involvement of the United States which goes all the way back to Eisenhower and gets deeper with Kennedy covertly, and then finally comes out into the open and becomes even more intensive under Lyndon Johnson. You know, this is the new kind of fulcrum is, as you just mentioned, on the theory of the domino, we cannot let South Vietnam fall to the communists. And so the Vietnam War becomes this new magnet that's just kind of sucking everything toward it. In a weird way, the United States lets off some of its pressure in terms of actually trying to overthrow Mao's regime. Now it's more almost, you could say, loosely speaking, a kind of containment, right? Try to limit China's reach and protect places like South Vietnam and other non-communist countries in Southeast Asia. So the game sort of changes. And paradoxically, that's what gets you to the moment of rapprochement which ironically is done as a covert mission. You know? Yes, I mean, that's he's, true. <laughs> here's Henry. Yeah, that's the sort of last clandestine operation of this whole era of U.S.-China relations from 1949 until the breakthrough of 1972. The last big mission is Henry Kissinger secretly flying, you know, via Pakistan, flying yeah, into China and having his secret talks with Zhou Enlai to basically discuss how do we end this whole era of secret animosity and create a really profound change in our relationship where we start to acknowledge one another's existence and even look for ways to, to get along. And I would just say that the Vietnam War, to a degree I don't think is appreciated enough, is more central to that, I would argue, actually, than the Soviets. When, when we usually tell this story, it's, oh, Kissinger, it was all about triangular diplomacy and Kissinger and Nixon were using the Chinese against the Soviets. That's true. Uh, but I actually think in the moment, they were much more focused on Vietnam. It was about, quote unquote, peace with honor, how to extricate from Vietnam. And they wanted to change the nature of the relationship with China to maybe somehow protect South Vietnam or to just kind of cover themselves as basically they ran for the hills and got out of South Vietnam. Those were much more urgent issues than the big strategic game of kind of how to use the China card to check the Soviets, although that's going on as well. So John, this kind of goes beyond the timeline in your book, but I'm also quite interested in the recent history of the CIA because it still does exist. It still holds authority and prestige in the American political life as well as the international sphere. Presumably, the CIA is still in China today. Yeah, well, as a historian, Cindy, one thing I guess I've learned from this whole process, a solid seven years working on this book, which is ultimately trying to figure out one single mission, right? And that's how it started. Uh, a mission in November, end of November, 1952. I suppose, and historians often end up mumbling things about this. It's not very helpful for journalists, but it leaves one cautious about thinking that they understand that we have the full picture, right? For better or for worse, of what's happening today. I mean, we were recently transfixed by this wonderful spy balloon, mm. which for me was just a marketing device for people to read my book about a spy plane. But, you know, it's a teachable moment in the sense of how limited our understanding is of what governments are doing secretly. And they do do a lot of things secretly, and they don't tell us often for 
decades. And it is ultimately historians who have to kind of figure out what was really happening. So I have no real idea of the scope and scale of what the CIA is quote unquote doing vis-a-vis China now. I don't see any outward evidence of anything like this 1950s Mm. cowboy spirit of actually trying to overthrow, undermine the PRC itself. I mean, I do think that we are in a, a very different space. And I mean, if the lesson was learned by the 1960s, that it looks like they're sticking around, um, here we are in the 2020s. And while, of course, there is debate about how strong and resilient the system is, and there's plenty of Americans who would like to wake up tomorrow and not see a communist government in China, in terms of active efforts, I don't really think we're in a phase of that kind of history. Uh, To me, the interesting question is what you raised about understanding. How good is the understanding of the intelligence community, you know, the kind of expertise that they have, their ability to read, to, uh, to know what makes not only Xi Jinping tick, but uh, much more broadly than that, the, the leadership, the party itself, the 90, close to 100 million party members, the society, you know, how good is the US government's kind of internal understanding, which is concentrated in the CIA and the intelligence community? How good is that understanding at this point? of where China is and where it's heading. I mean, all of this does make me wonder, you know, the CCP likes to blame foreign interference for most of domestic dissent that it sees. For example, November's anti-zero COVID protests, but also during the Hong Kong protests and often non-governmental organisations get a lot of the blame, especially if they're religious, like they have a Christian slant or something like that. Although in your book, you do mention the missionaries who did help the CIA make contact. (laughs) So it does just make me wonder how much the party sometimes has a partial point, at least in some of the stuff that's been um, fermented. And I hear what you're saying about the CIA learning its lessons from the 50s. But I also wonder if we're seeing a reversion back to that kind of Cold War spirit at the moment. One thing I want to pick up on was this idea of national security, which allowed the CIA to do so much of what it did because of this very broad interpretation of what defending American national security would mean, which was interpreted as kind of defeating communism everywhere in the world. We're seeing that coming back now, aren't we? I mean, in terms of a broad definition of national security, we're seeing it in the semiconductors industry, we're seeing it in various supply chain issues. So I was just wondering from you, John, you know, what are the parallels that we see in the world today? I mean, do you think that there is a bit of a cyclical nature to what we're seeing with US-China relationships at the moment? I wouldn't go so far as to say cyclical nature, but I would say that there's something we can all learn, you know, Americans, Chinese, and everybody else who's interested by going back and looking at the period from kind of 49 to 72 and thinking about that as a version of what the future could look like in the sense that rather than being on both sides actively committed to a relatively amicable relationship, you know, to kind of getting along, are you committed to getting along? Like after 1972, Americans and Chinese were pretty committed to getting along. And there were a lot of bumps in the roads. There are plenty of ups and downs, but there was this kind of underlying, we're going to get along now. We're going to recognize one another as governments, you know, and deal with one another. You could almost say professionally. And we seem to be now moving backwards to the pre-1972 dynamic of 
not wanting to get along. I don't think that it's taking right now or even likely to take the same kind of form in these clandestine efforts to overthrow the CCP. And if, there, if there's any Chinese propagandist out there hoping to invite me on their show, <laughs> I can tell them now it's a very bad idea because I'm a Chinese historian and I'm going to end up talking about how brutal CCP rule was, particularly in the 1950s. It's one of the worst periods. So I doubt they really want to get into that because you can't talk about the one and, and not talk about the other. And as you say, and I'm cognizant of this, but the history is the history, but this notion of a perpetual effort by the United States, you know, to covertly weaponize criticism of the CCP is itself weaponized and used constantly to try to delegitimate genuine critics who have really good points who should be heard. And that, of course, is to the tragic detriment of China that that continues. So I wouldn't go that far. And I don't see evidence of it. I mean, if we do see evidence, there's evidence, but it's it's awfully thin when you look at things like Hong Kong or look at changing views in Taiwan, for example, about their comfort level with some sort of future where the two parts can somehow become one again. You know, you don't have to look for CIA meddling to understand those things. So I don't, uh, I wouldn't push the notion of of cycles to that extent, but I do think in terms of the basic nature of the U.S.-China relationship, there's very something very dangerous afoot, most disconcertingly on both sides, and then they kind of feed one another of a paradigm shift. Right now, for example, the Biden administration is trying to keep it at competition. But to me, that feels like a, a transitional paradigm at heading toward we're not trying to get along anymore. And that can lead us into a very dark place, both countries, not good for anyone. So um, as far as shifting from my historian to my just looking at the world now, I would say the lesson is deeply cautionary about how badly that worked out in the 50s and 60s. John DeLeary, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks again, Cindy. I really enjoyed talking with you. And thank you for listening. For further listening on related themes, I'd recommend going through the archives to find my episode with Bill Hayton about what it means to be Chinese, where you'll hear more about these Chinese reformers from whom the third force descended, and that's from November 2021, and the episode with Rana Mitter on the history of Taiwan, what was happening on the other side of the strait, what we've been talking about in this episode under Chiang Kai-shek. And that's an episode from April 2021. Do leave us a rating and a review if you enjoyed this podcast and share us with your friends.